This Tridio production is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and made possible by you, our listener. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit tridio.com slash donate. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of How to Live Like a Hobbit, recorded in the dark woods near the place where I live. And when I say dark, I mean it's really getting dark. The sun has set, and even though um, the sun itself is not there, there's fortunately a bit of residue light that helps me to see where I'm walking, at least for the moment. But I am approaching a darker uh, part of the forest. This is all pine trees, and the path is going through the pine trees, but it is almost completely dark. Fortunately, if I keep following the path, it will eventually bring me to a brighter spot. <laughs> but uh, I have to say this, this, especially on my left, it is completely black in between the, 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 the trees. It's pitch, pitch dark, which kind of fits the mood of this episode because we are going to accompany Bilbo when he ventures into Mirkwood, the dark, dark forest of Mirkwood with the dangerous dark water that makes you forget who you are and where you are and the darkness that also harbors a lot of unseen, dangerous creatures. And as I explained in the previous episode, it is oftentimes when faced with danger and enemies and monsters and dragons that Bilbo truly grows and that he discovers his courage and his strength um, talents that he didn't know he had and had he not been in those difficult dangerous situations that would have never woken up inside of him and so that is why I'm walking in these dark, dark woods here right now. And hopefully I'll be able to escape the darkness <laughs> at the end of the episode. <laughs> we will see. Just continue to listen. The first moment that I wanted to uh, mention here starts in darkness too. This is in the mountains. Bilbo and the dwarfs have, have just... Uh, escaped the horrible weather outside, the thunderstorm, but also the danger of the stone creatures that are hurling rocks at each other. And instead of uh, waiting it out outside, uh, they've discovered a small cave and they go inside. They didn't check it, which is not the smartest thing to do in uh, Middle Earth where oftentimes caves are inhabited by dangerous creatures. And that is exactly the case in this cave. Bilbo has a nightmare. He has this weird dream. And in this dream, he sees the, the, the walls of the cave open, and there's a crack, and there is darkness behind the crack. And, you know, it turns out that the, the, the dream is warning him for something that is happening real, in, in real time as well. Because the goblins are entering the cave, they uh, turn out to have a secret entrance into that cave, and they capture Bilbo and the dwarves. 
Um, and the goblins are, are awful. They're really, really awful, awful creatures. Um, because uh, they're, they seem to be pure evil. Um, I think I have to go to the left here. The path is getting um, harder to see. <laughs> uh, wow, now I wish I had a torch or something. Um, definitely unprepared for this, this uh, itinerary. Is that a path? No, I think this was not a path. I thought it was a path. Let's go back. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is getting lost here in the, in the darkness of the woods. Because, well, there may not be goblins here, but nevertheless, darkness is always dangerous. You can trip over something and fall and break a leg and then, you know... <laughs> It's always at those times that your the battery of your mobile phone, you know, runs out of power. I think I found the path. Don't worry. Still here with you. I see a little... Actually, I see a light in the distance. Is that... Is that a lantern? I hope it's not a fire with trolls, three big trolls around it. Um... The the goblins, what makes them so vicious and nasty and hateable is that the the goblins, in a way, are a bit like the dwarves. They, too, like to live underground. They're good at digging tunnels, and that's actually where they bring Bilbo and the dwarves. Uh, there's this intricate system of tunnels, and they want to bring them to the great goblin, of course. Uh, but unlike the dwarves... The goblins hate work. Um, those are windows, actually, of a, of a house in the woods. But I'm not going there. I'm turning to the right here. And I'm now walking next to an open field, which is, I have to say, a lot more comforting than walking in the deep, dark forest. So um, the goblins are lazy and greedy and so they they capture cre other creatures and let them work as slaves for them um, they remind us a little bit about manipulative people in our own lives people that sometimes just very subtly know how to make you do their work manipulate you into into um following their will and not leaving you any choice, making you feel robbed of your freedom. I've definitely had people in my life that were like that. And, and sometimes the, the manipulation can be very subtle. You may not even notice it at first, but I've been in situations with people where um, at first I, I, I felt that I was, you know, being guided and led and uh, I thought, well, wow, I, this is someone who can truly show me the way. And then bit by bit, started to discover that, wait a minute, I'm now doing things that I, you know, I don't, I don't agree with. I wouldn't, I don't want to do it in this way. I, I would make other choices, but no matter what I say, it's not being heard. Um, and I'm being pushed in a direction that I don't want to go. And, uh, uh, I don't know how to escape. It's, it's these moments where you feel that psychologically you're a hostage of someone else. That is a very uncomfortable situation to be in. And 
in a way, perhaps the goblins in Tolkien's story um, mirror a bit of that behavior of overpowering others and uh, forcing their will upon them, robbing them of, the, of, free, of their freedom, which, of course, is very counter to the values that Tolkien stood for, which were respect and kindness and a very huge sense of freedom and how, how important it was. Of course, you know, he was a professor. And even in research, freedom is so important. Being able to explore without being forced, coerced, you know, uh, thinking, the process of thinking and creating and telling stories is, I think, essentially a free, an exercise of free will. If there's no freedom, then you can't tell any stories anymore. Anyway, perhaps I'm going a little bit off topic here. So, um, there can be worse um, than manipulative people. You can have people that are just downright evil and cruel. Um, and of course, you never really know how they be- became so bad and so evil and self-centered and cruel but they are now and they seem to delight in other people's suffering and uh, I'm not telling you anything new that if you follow the uh, events in our world with terrorism on the rise and the atrocities that happen in certain countries where groups of people persecute other groups of people and seem to relish in the death and destruction and the suffering and the, the, the torturing of other people, you know, I have a hard time seeing the humanity of those perpetrators. And it, it, they almost feel like goblins to me and orcs and just pure evil evil people and in in Tolkien's world evil is always not just deteriorating the soul but it has a physical aspect as well it has a uh, it, 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 it tends to externalize itself evil and that's why the bad creatures the evil creatures are always awful to look at they're, they're nasty they're dirty they're they look vicious and, and, and horrible. And uh, the, the people with pure souls, or the creatures with pure souls, they think of the elves, they're always described with beauty and art. And um, that's, of course, kind of a, a thing that fairy tales do. But in our world, um, it might be more nuanced because evil can hide between facades and something, someone can look very, very nice and beautiful and yet be completely rotten on the inside. Jesus warns about that. He's like, some people are like, you know, graves. They're white on the outside, but they're compu- completely petrif- um, they're, they're rotting on the inside. I'm walking alongside the road because this is the easiest uh, road for me to follow to get back to my point of departure without losing myself in the forest. I don't dare to go into the woods anymore. Um, although I'm still surrounded by the, by the forest. 
but it's a, it's a bit too dark to still see these tiny tracks. So um, some people seem to have completely uh, given up on, on the light and they revel in darkness and they are cruel and do unspeakable evil. And there is something of a fallen state to those people. It's almost as uh, the theology about the angels and the demons. In Catholic theology, um, demons are fallen angels, literally. Um, They are just like angels, pure spirits without a body. And because they're pure spirits, they are timeless. And so they have a free will, just like human beings. But that will is immediate and instant and forever because they're you know they're not they're living beyond time in 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 theology these are difficult concepts for us to to grasp because we are time living in time and we are we have physical bodies so it's a bit of a theoretical exercise but that is why angels had to make a choice when they were created and that choice was to love god or to refuse that love um, you know the essence of free will is that even no matter how unlikely it is that someone would, would refuse God's love, it is still a possibility. Otherwise, you wouldn't have free will. And according to the tradition in the Catholic Church, in the Catholic theology, um, the there were angels that chose when they were first created to rebel against God, and because they are timeless that was a definitive call a definitive decision and so there is no way back for those fallen angels and uh, because they were created for love and for god's love and light having turned against him makes them miserable makes them suffer and the only thing that they can do is uh, do the opposite of good and that is to turn other people away from god as well to ratify their own mistaken choice. Well, in a way, the goblins in Tolkien's story are a bit a parallel type creature to those angels. There, if I'm not mistaken, but I'm not a very big um, expert on this. Um, the goblins actually goblins stem from the same origins as um, I think the elves, isn't it? They have the same pointy ears, and so something. The dwarves is a different story in the uh, the creation stories of Tolkien, but the the elves and and the goblins may be of the same origin. But then, you know, the goblins cho- chose evil, um, and what do you do when you're confronted with the, with these creatures? Um, and with their darkness. This is perhaps one of the most decisive moments in um, in the early adventures of Bilbo. He is thrown into darkness. Um, and the darkness of the caves and the tunnels that the orcs have uh, dug underground is a symbol, of course, of their of the absence of light, of goodness, of hope. And Bilbo can do two things. And his first reaction, his first way to deal with the darkness is not helping at all. Because he is trying escapism, which is um, very relatable. 
you know, if you are in hard times, sometimes we just want to close our eyes and pretend that it's not there. <laughs> and so Bilbo starts to think of fried bacon and eggs. <laughs> you know, when in darkness, think of bacon. And perhaps that will help. After all, for a lot of people, bacon is, you know, one of the best things on the planet Earth. And so <laughs> he thinks of bacon. He thinks of the times that he was back in the Shire having a nice meal. And he even tries at one point to smoke a pipe, to, to light his pipe. And uh, it doesn't work, of course, because it's dark and uh, it's, it's more humid. And so he, and then just a moment later, he's like, oh my gosh, it's a good thing that I was unable to light my pipe because the smoke of tobacco would have certainly alerted the goblins who at that time have, have lost track of Bilbo. Um, so escapism doesn't work. And there is only one other thing that he can do, and that is to face the darkness. And while I'm telling you this, I am actually walking on this very, very dark road. And escapism doesn't really help here. I just need, need to continue in the darkness um, and kind of trusting that I will find my way back to uh, where I, to, to my point of departure, back to the entr- entrance of the, of the woods. And so that's what Bilbo does. When faced with this terror of the darkness, he, he feels his sword and he pulls it out. And then that's the moment that the sword lights up for the first time. Of course, it's not a normal sword. There's a sting. And it, it glows with a blue light whenever danger is there. As if to light up the darkness. As if to encourage the user of the sword to stand in that light. And to not concede to the darkness, but to fight it. And that is exactly what happens to Bilbo. He finds his courage for the first time and looking at the light of the, of the sword, just as I'm looking at the light of my cell phone here where I have my speaking, my talking notes, it, the light gives you courage in the darkness. It makes you realize that darkness is temporary and that light is always stronger. It's even so strong that if I look at my notes right now, I'm temporarily blinded and everything around me seems much darker. Um, I should probably lower the brightness of the screen a little bit. But the lesson here is when you are surrounded by darkness, don't complain about the darkness, but light a fire. I know it's a very... Um, uh, it's a how do you say that? It's an open door statement. It's very cliche, uh, but it's true. You know, it doesn't help to complain about the darkness. What you can do is face it and find your courage and combat the darkness with light. This will happen again much later on when Bilbo is facing new danger in the dark forest of Mirkwood. But we're not there yet. So. In this darkness, um, Bilbo encounters a new creature. And uh, that creature... Whoops, there goes my phone. That's what I mean with the dangers of darkness. You know, you can't really tell where you're walking. (laughs) And fortunately, I have 
a protective cover on my phone and I have to step away for from the light of this of this car that's approaching me. This darkness is also dangerous for other people here in the in the woods that may not see everything or may not pay attention because of the darkness. Anyway, dangerous. Darkness is dangerous. Uh, Gollum. We meet Gollum for the first time. And uh, Gollum is a creature that has changed over time in the stories of Tolkien. When Tolkien wrote the first version of The Hobbit, Gollum was still, you know, he was a sad, creepy little creature in the darkness, um, miserable, but also honorable. Um, he had a, a certain good side. But then later on, when he started writing The Lord of the Rings, uh, Tolkien realized that he had to modify um, his introduction of Gollum because of what would happen later on in the story. So um, over time, Gollum becomes more, more vicious, uh, less forgiving, more dangerous and treacherous. Um, we all know Gollum also uh, for, from the depiction of, uh, or the, the, yeah, the way he's visualized in the movies by Peter Jackson and um, it's, it's pretty good <laughs> fantastic how um, uh, he, he shows both his Schmeagol side and uh, the Gollum side and they're constantly talking to each other and you may think that it's actually um, like the uh, <laughs> um, the image of someone who has both a devil on his left shoulder and uh, an angel on his right shoulder, and that the debate is between the good side of Gollum and the, his evil side. But um, uh, uh, Corey Olson, um, the Tolkien professor who, who wrote a, a great book about the hobbits, it's like a, a reading guide almost, uh, I think makes a very good point, um, saying what's well, actually the optimistic and the pessimistic side of Gollum that are constantly in in um, in a conversation, and so Schmeagol is more optimistic about the outcome of things, and Gollum is very pessimistic, very uh, distrusting of everything that happens, and he's more much more violent because of that. Um, so, in order to, for Bilbo to escape. Uh, Gollum and to find his way back out of the caves uh, they agree to play a riddle game and of course the riddles are extremely important uh, in uh, in the story of the Hobbit and for Hobbits in general they love riddles and um, the description of Gollum even seems to imply that in his early days before he turned into Gollum you know, he was just like a hobbit, and he too liked to play these riddle games, and so it awakened something in him, perhaps even nostalgia for, you know, long-forgotten times when life was still fun. And so Gollum agrees to this, this riddle game and promises that if Bilbo wins, he will guide Bilbo back to the, back to the light, out of the cave. And of course, in especially in the later versions of the story, uh, turns out that Gollum is unable to do that and he doesn't want to hold up his part of the bargain. Um, but this riddle game 
is very interesting because the way they tell the riddles, um, I think, reveals a lot about the the both both our our protagonists here. Um, you will see that Gollum's riddles are always about emptiness and despair, whereas Bilbo's riddles are full of light and colors. Um, they're bright and funny, even. Uh, think of the... I think one of the first riddles is um, about the wind, and Gollum describes it as the voiceless crying wind. It's emptiness. And then Bilbo comes up with a riddle, and it's about the sun and the daisies and the field and the grass. And <laughs> it's all bright and, and, um, and cheerful. Um, then you have... Uh, the opposition between darkness versus life. Gollum um, is is talking about uh, the darkness, not just as the absence of light, but something that replaces the light and even kills the light. And then Bilbo has the beautiful riddle of the egg, which he describes as something that has a, a golden treasure inside. And of course, the treasure is not just the gold, which could refer to the treasure of the dwarf that is coming into play much later and that Gollum doesn't know much about. But uh, it's more important, these, the, the egg, of course, is the symbol for life. And so the treasure that, that is hidden inside is, is life, and that is what's motivating Bilbo. And the opposition in, in that riddle, in that exchange, is literally between darkness and life and how life is stronger than darkness. But um, Gollum can't see that, of course. Um, then Gollum comes up with the you know, description of a fish that makes it almost feel like a zombie fish or whatever. It's a horrible creature. It's a monster. And, and it's because Bilbo sees a fish that he kind of realizes, ah, oh, he's talking about a fish. But it's so kind of a... It's such a twisted description of a fish that Bilbo at first doesn't even recognize the description. That's how much Gollum's frame, uh, 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 his his look at the world is so different from Bilbo's look at the world. And then uh, Bilbo comes up with this uh, riddle about the one leg, two legs, three legs, and it, it turns out to be a man sitting on a stool eating a meal with his cat next to him who will also get a part of that meal. And so it's about homeliness, uh, about, you know, a, a nice, warm image. Again, it's, it's this, you know, death versus life and safety. And then um, the final riddle and the description, final description of Gollum almost makes the situation hopeless. Um, because it, Gollum talks about time and how time destroys everything. It is literally a, a riddle that shows us how hopeless Gollum has become over time. The ring keeps him alive much longer than perhaps is natural. But it's a life, you know, the extension of his life doesn't add anything to it. It only makes him more miserable year after year because he's alone and he has lost the goodness in his heart. And Bilbo is so taken aback by that, he still manages to guess it, that he doesn't know what to, what other riddle could top that. And it's almost by accident that he comes up with this, uh, you know, what's in my pocket. And it's, it's funny because that ring 
that he has in his pocket ultimately is, is, is almost the answer to that, you know, destruction of time because the ring, in a certain twisted way, gives life to, to, uh, to the bearer and even very long life, as we see in the beginning of, um, of The Lord of the Rings, where Bilbo is very old but still has a lot of life inside of him because of the, the, the ring itself. But yeah, and again, I think what Tolkien wants to convey here, this is, the, the, this is the confrontation between despair, hopelessness, darkness, and life, and cheerfulness, and fun, and, 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 and light. And uh, the ultimate confrontation is, uh, I mean, the real, the true question, the true moral question that Bilbo faces, it goes way beyond the, the riddles that he tries to solve. But it's a, it's a moral question. Once he's invisible and he has realized that Gollum wants to kill him, he, he becomes invisible and he can actually, at that moment, kill um, Gollum. And so the choice there is, will he kill Gollum, who is threatening his life, so it would be self-defense, or can he be greater than his enemy? And have mercy, and and Bilbo chooses the latter, which is a moral choice that will have repercussions for the rest of the entire history of Middle Earth. Because had Bilbo not shown mercy to Bilbo at that very moment, the ring might have never been destroyed. As you know, if you've read the entire story of the Lord of the Rings, and so it's. It's incredible. I think it's so powerful what Tolkien shows here that when you are faced with even mortal danger and you choose mercy, even though that might cost you your life, mercy will always win in the end. It will have consequences that are more powerful than you can imagine. And it's... Yeah, I don't. I think it's 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 just incredible how much that that insignificant moment. And I don't even think that Tolkien, when he wrote this, knew the the true impact. That's what I explained earlier as well. Is that sometimes this story tells itself, and Tolkien doesn't even realize all the deeper layers of what of the story that he's telling or that is being told through him. Who knows? And so, um, unbelievably powerful that mercy. Um, can be a choice that you make against all odds, against common sense, but that will ultimately, in this case, save the world. How powerful is that? Um, And it's because mercy is illogical. It goes against any good reason. There are no arguments for mercy. Mercy is a gift, and evil does not understand mercy. It, it, it's, it, it doesn't see the consequences and the danger of mercy in a certain way. And that, I think, is why ultimately Sauron is defeated because of this mercy at the beginning of the story shown to, uh, to this miserable victim of evil, which is Colum. And, and this is because of the quality of Bilbo to be able to empathize with his enemy and to have mercy and to, to pity his enemy instead of just hating him. 
Uh, it's really very virtuous behavior that we see here, and it pays off in the end. So lessons learned. When you are faced with people that can only see darkness and gloom, and you have sometimes these negative people, um, again, I keep going back to our experiences on social media, where you will bump into these people and they always bring you down and they they are always negative and there's never any you know hope in what they write or post um the lessons that we can learn from bilbo is keep thinking happy thoughts (laughs) sounds almost like a disney you know fairy tale but it's it's powerful uh you don't have to go along with darkness It's, it's it's the same when um uh, when people are talking negatively about other people or, or about situations, there is an option to go along with them and to also be torn into that negativity and and say things that you might regret later on. But there is another option, and that is to either walk away or to stay positive and see the right thing. And that's often difficult to talk with someone who only sees negative side of life if, if you are optimistic and you try to point the other way sometimes the light can even be threatening because it blinds the person who has lived in darkness for so long but that doesn't that shouldn't dis, uh, that shouldn't discourage you from keeping that light in your own heart um, so don't follow the logic of darkness well speaking of darkness murkwood it almost feels like I am right now in Mirkwood. It is pitch dark. I'm actually, I've walked to a lantern and I'm pacing back and forth because this is the entrance to the forest and I don't want to lose my way. I don't want to venture anymore into darkness. I'm not as brave as Bilbo and the dwarves, but they have no choice. They have to go through Mirkwood. And uh, there's the black water. Um, there is also this magically induced sleep probably caused by the elves it's kind of unclear but Bilbo falls asleep and when he wakes up he sees a monstrous spider wrapping his feet in silk trying to drag him away to eat him and this again is a moment where Bilbo um, draws his sword but this time he doesn't have to think about it he's not even trying to think of bacon and eggs (laughs) anymore and immediately finds his courage draws his sword and kills the spider all by himself and he's so he feels so proud because this is the first time that he has defeated a major lethal enemy without the help of the dwarves without the help of Gandalf this is Bilbo who did this and it makes him so strong and and joyful uh, very relatable, I think. There, are, there have been moments in our lives where we have conquered obstacles by ourselves. And it makes us so strong and it helps us to feel more confident about ourselves. Because nobody helped us. We did this all by ourselves. Uh, that is, I think, why it's also important to, um, to give children this sense of accomplishment, to not always try to help them with everything. Sometimes it's better to let them, you know, conquer obstacles by themselves. This, of course, requires discernment as parents, but it's very important for their their sense of confidence, of self-worth, that they too are capable of doing things that they 
you know, might not know that they could do. So giving, helping children to find courage when faced with danger is something that will pay off in, for the rest of their lives. And perhaps in, you know, when I was a child, I, I probably ran away a bit too often. And I, I, I sometimes think, what would my life look like? And what, what kind of person would I be had I stood up to some of the bullies that were threatening me? Or, and, you know, if I had been a little bit more courageous. I don't know, this is always in hindsight that you think of, you know, what, what if I would have done this or that. But courage, courage is always something that gives you strength and it will help you in future situations because once you have found the strength of courage, it's, it's much easier to find it again. That's why the second time that Bilbo draws his sword is not only to defeat the spider that was threatening him, but he decides to do something even more courageous because he knows that the dwarfs too have been captured by the spider. So he goes back into the spider's den, which is something I hate spiders. I really, it's, it's, uh, I don't care about mice or rats or snakes. Really, they don't scare me that much, but spiders, oh my goodness. So that that is a chapter that I don't like to read, and I certainly didn't like the way it was shown in the movies because, wow, it's just so creepy. But Bilbo has courage, and he goes back and frees the dwarves and kills a whole bunch of, of spiders. And um, uh, I think that that's all kind of building him up for the next confrontation because the spiders, even though they're horrible, and man, I would rather face an army of goblins than an army of spiders, but it, it's nothing compared to the even bigger danger that Bilbo has to face. And of course, that is the big opponent, the mortal enemy of the dwarves, Schmauk, the dragon. Um, an incredibly powerful creature um, in the movie Bilbo even faints when they describe how much uh, the fire uh, the, the fiery breath of, of uh, Schmauk can, can pulverize someone and it's, it's a little bit too much for Bilbo to take in when he's still in the Shire but now, since he has had these moments where he has discovered that sometimes you have to stand up against the darkness, um, that he has the courage to face the dragon. And it's quite amazing what he does. Uh, if you realize how big the dragon is and how small a hobbit is. Um, and Bilbo not only um, finds the courage to enter the darkness of the mountain, there's a scene where he's in front of this, this dark tunnel and the dwarves i think balan is is walking with him but then he's on his own and he has to walk into that darkness and man i'm looking at this road in front of me and it's pitch dark i see the skies are lit because there's the moon but the 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 woods themselves i would not dare to walk back to where i came from (laughs) like half an hour ago when i started this recording because it's too dark but bilbo goes in there knowing that it's not just a darkness that could freak you out, but that there is a dragon at the end of the tunnel. And so um, Bilbo starts to talk with the dragon and to confront him. And uh, at that moment, he realizes 
that he is a very different hobbit from the one who left the Shire. And he, uh, he tells us, or he's thinking out loud, that, you know, I haven't used my handkerchief for a very long time, but I'm still alive. <laughs> so a lot of the things that were huge obstacles when he first started his adventure are now completely irrelevant. That's a sign of growth. And it's, it's, this is what courage does to you. It's, it's, once you tackle the bigger enemies or the bigger dangers and a lot of the things that you, would, that you fuzzed about before and you were anxious about completely lose their relevance to you and, you know, you don't care anymore. Um, so the smaller challenges can make us stronger to face the real dangers later in life. Um, perhaps that is why, if you would allow me, uh, me to make another theological uh, um, remark here, perhaps that is why God sometimes allows bad things to happen to us. This is a big problem in, uh, for, for many people in their walk of faith. It, you know, why does bad things happen to, why do bad things happen to good people? There are many different responses to that, and sometimes you cannot really find a good answer to that question. But one of the things that may play in this is that sometimes God allows something to happen to us so that it will make us stronger, so that we will discover our courage, so that we will ask for his help. God is not the origin of evil, of course not. He's not someone who causes pain on purpose. Uh, pain and suffering is part of our broken world. Um, and the story of creation and Adam and Eve kind of conveys that this, you know, the cause of evil was not God. It was a, a, a free decision by mankind to turn away from God. And that is what introduced evil in the world, just as the fall of the angels and them turning away from the light, or certain angels... Uh, you know, was was even be- before the the choice of man of Adam and Eve to turn away from God. It was the serpent, the snake, uh, in in the garden who seduced them. Because you know, it seems to imply the story seems to imply that you know there was another creature who turned to evil even before Adam and Eve did. But anyway, somewhere here and there, sometimes God will allow this brokenness to affect us because it can help us make the right choices. It can help us to latch on to the light and to find our courage and overcome the darkness. And that will prepare us, perhaps, for situations later on in life. It's only in hindsight that we will be able to look at the, 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 the roadmap of our lives and, and that we can truly judge whether something was unjust or not. Let's not be too quick with our our anger, you know, why does God allow these things? There have been moments in my life where I went through very dark times. And I remember when I was in the middle of that darkness, I, 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 I didn't understand it. And I resented it. And I was like, God, why do you allow this? I'm a good guy. You know, I deserve better than that. And it's only in hindsight that I, I discovered that it was by staying put in those situations, by, by trying to overcome it, that I, that I became stronger, more resilient, that I started to discern what to do in similar situations. And now it's those dark 
times are part of my strength. It's kind of what happens to Bilbo as well, I think. It's because of the spiders that he dares to face the dragon. And it turns out that the dragon is um, very powerful, but also extremely vulnerable. Uh, Bilbo, who is at that when he's confronting Smaug, is feeling even overconfident. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of scary when Bilbo is like so full of courage that he may be overstepping the boundaries of what's safe there. Um, but he notices that um, Schmauk has this one scale that is missing. And even though his skin is impenetrable, there is this one hole in, and it's almost like the small exhaust port on the Death Star, you know? Once you know the Achilles heel, then it is possible to break through the defenses of, of the dragon. But the weakness of that one scale that is missing is just one of Schmauk's weaknesses. Um, he suffers from the, what they call the dragon sickness, which is ultimately just greed and um, the obsession with, with money and gold and not being able to let go of that and to value anything else but that. And it's, um, again, a, I think a very deep notion of, of the origin of evil. Um, it's oftentimes putting something in the place of, of what's truly good for us. Um, if God is the highest good in, 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 in the universe and uh, the, the highest form of, of love that we can aspire to and it's actually what we're made for, anything that replaces God, even though it may have a certain amount of value, is, is leading to darkness because it's not God and it's unable to satisfy us. And that, that makes us sick. This, the ultimate dragon sickness is latching on to something that can never satisfy you and that can never be enough. And that is why Schmaug is ultimately very miserable and alone, just like Thorin later when he catches this dragon sickness, is also miserable and unable to escape this, this growing darkness around him because instead of, of fighting and showing courage, he... he um, he holds on to this treasure that he's been hunting for most of his life, just like his fellow dwarves. It was taken from them, and, and they've always thought that once they had their treasure back, everything would be well. The thing is, it is not enough. And they aspire to, to more, and, and, and at the same time, they don't dare to let go. And they don't, because they're holding on to that treasure, they cannot find what is truly important. Bilbo will find that by the way but that's i'm keeping that for the end of the episode um so smoke is also very smart and he what he, the first thing that he tries to do is to create a, a a separation between bilbo and the dwarves he tries to lure and in that way he's a bit diabolical he tries to lure Bilbo into thinking that the dwarves 
are not truly his friends, which formally is the case. He's just a burglar that has been hired. He has a contract that he carries along with him that stipulates that once he does his job, you know, he will get his share of the treasure and then he can go home. So, yeah, he is basically uh, uh, someone who's been hired by the dwarves. But, of course, over time, there has been this friendship and this trust that has grown between Bilbo and the dwarves, and they've become much more than just an employer to Bilbo. They've become true friends. But, but Schmauk tries to, um, to influence Bilbo's thinking, and he's very powerful, very seductive, and, and, and Bilbo almost falls for it and, and starts to realize, oh, wait a minute, perhaps he is right. Perhaps they're not my friends. And... Um, and of course, it's the same distrust that Schmauk has and has allowed to take over everything he is. Um, he is he mistrusts anyone because uh, they could all pose a threat to his possessions and to what makes him feel strong. And that makes Schmauk ultimately very weak. Um, he trusts no one. He only trusts his treasure and himself. Uh, but this dragon sickness is ultimately what makes him go out for revenge, and that will that that flight will reveal his weakness to Bard the Bowman, and that will be the end of him. And so, you know, there there probably was a a, a whole different dragon life in store for Schmauk had he made different decisions. Uh, but that's a whole different story, perhaps. <laughs> if Tolkien would still be alive, he, he, he could have written like an alternate version of the life of Schmauk. But I, I, I doubt that it would, it would have been an interesting story because, you know, when everything is good and people make the right choices, then there is no story. There is no adventure. Uh, but anyway, this is about this, the dragon sickness and how contagious it is. And that, of course, finds its ultimate... Um, how would you say that? The, the, the sickness is, is focusing on the possession of the Arkenstone, the symbol of the power of the dwarves. And Thorin wants that Arkenstone, and Bilbo is the one who finds it and steals it. And the Arkenstone has that same sick influence on Bilbo he he gets even though Bilbo is a very simple hobbit and you know we've talked about the contentment in his life and he didn't need much to be happy but the Arkenstone has this power over him and so he steals it and he feels for the first time feels like in the adventure he feels like a true burglar and he has the Arkenstone and and then of course the question is what is he going to do with it is he going to be another victim of this dragon sickness? Is the Arkenstone going to be his source of power? And, well, in, in, a, in, in many ways, I think the Arkenstone is, is a prelude, um, almost a prediction of the power of the ring uh, over, over Frodo. And, well, first over Bilbo as well. You know, it's this greed. It's like, my precious, I'm keeping this. This is giving me power. This is giving me life. But it's substitute life. It's not true power. It is, it is, um, it's not the ultimate good. Um, but it is very luring and powerful and, and it enchants Bilbo. And yet, ultimately, 
Bilbo is able to resist the the power of the Arkenstone, just as later on Frodo will be able, to a certain extent, to resist the incredible power of the ring, much more than anyone else. That's why everyone is, is afraid of the ring and the power, even Gandalf, um, even Galadriel. And only Frodo, because of his honesty and his transparency and his simplicity, is able to carry the ring. And even then, the ring is, is very dangerous to Frodo. So, Bilbo um, is able to resist the temp- temptation to keep the Arkenstone for himself. He also realizes that it would be very dangerous to give it to Thorin because he sees how much Thorin is consumed by the dragon sickness. And so he decides to give up his reward. He could have kept the Arkenstone for himself as a reward for all the trouble, but he gives it to Bart the Bowman. And he motivates it by saying, I am doing this to avoid trouble for all concerned. So, to avoid trouble for all concerned, he's, he's not even saying to avoid a major war, etc. No, it's just no more trouble. Bilbo has um, discovered and realized at the end of the story that his true treasure cannot be uh, measured in, in gold and silver. Uh, it's not about the Ark and Stone. But his greatest treasure... Um, is what he says, the grass under his feet, the tea kettles, the smoke rings, the bacon and eggs. That's the treasure that he now values more than ever before because he's been without it and he has been hunting for all these other substitute treasures which are only bringing him further away from his, his well, what makes a hobbit happy. And what substitutes itself for for the happiness in his life. And so he decides to go back to the Shire uh, after the Battle of the Five Armies. Um, He doesn't take his part of the treasure. He takes a little bit. And I think it's very good that he didn't take much with him home because when he enters the Shire, he sees that uh, his relatives are, are starting to you know, rob his house because they, they never thought that he would return. And so they're emptying his house and taking away his stuff. You know, what would have happened if he had taken a huge treasure? It, probably the Shire would not be the same anymore because people would have, more hobbits would have fallen for the dragon sickness as well. Bilbo understands that possessions and gold um, can only... Uh, bring division and won't truly satisfy your need for for happiness and love and friendship and that is his greatest discovery and it it has taken all these enemies all these you know (laughs) goblins and and uh, the, the, the the wargs and the spiders and the trolls and the dragon um and all that to realize that all these evildoers, all these uh, nasty creatures were all unhappy because they were chasing the wrong treasure in their lives. And there's only one thing that can make you happy, and that is to go back to the Shire and to rediscover, to re-embrace this contentment in life. And that is exactly what Bilbo does. He, he is content being back in the Shire. And even though he is not the same hobbit anymore than he was 
that he was and the Shire may have changed a little bit and people may not trust him in the same way because he has been on all these crazy adventures over time he still wins their heart hearts and that's what 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 we discover when we begin the lord of the rings and there is this anniversary party this uh, this uh, birthday party and uh and and bilbo is back to being his own generous self and there is only one one last thing that he can't let go of and that is the ring but ultimately he does let go and that ring is now brought to mount doom by frodo his nephew and frodo too will have to face very similar dangers and enemies and 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 monsters uh, and, and in a way, even bigger ones than the ones that were uh, threatening Bilbo. But just like his uncle, Frodo is stronger than evil and darkness. And it's ultimately, even though he fails in some respects, um, ultimately the story ends well. And it ends in the Shire with Frodo completing the work of his uncle and writing uh, his, his adventures uh, down, just like Tolkien wrote these adventures for us so that they can instruct the generations after him and uh, can help us uh, guide our lives and that's exactly why i recorded this uh, this episode or these episodes for you to do exactly that to go through these stories and see what we can learn and uh, if there are lessons that we can take away from this book that will bring it from middle earth to our own uh, life and our own earth and, well, I hope you enjoyed it. That's what I wanted to share with you in these four episodes. Stay tuned, of course, for more episodes in this same vein. And I might revisit this in the future. Uh, because, of course, the works of Tolkien are much bigger than uh, the, the few chapters that I've been able to discuss here. Um, but uh, very soon we will start another series um, similar to this one. Um, where we will uh, learn to live like dot 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 if you want to discover what I invite you again to follow us on social media look for Tridio it's T-R-I-D-E-O please like our Facebook page follow us on Twitter subscribe to our newsletter on Tridio.com and uh, if you do that then you will discover soon what the next adventure will be um, and I thank you so much for your feedback and please let me know what you think and feel free to add comments to the blog or to um, the, the social media posts and all the links are in the show notes. And if you appreciate what I try to do with these episodes and if you like these podcasts and you want to help me make more of these, then I would uh, gladly invite you to become a, um, a sponsor. Uh, we can only do this because of your donations. We are starting our fund drive, our end-of-the-year fund drive, and we are currently in a situation where our expenses are bigger than our, uh, our, the donations that are coming in. Um, so we need to ask for your help. Um, and, of course, uh, ultimately, this is not about gold. <laughs> this is not about money. Um, but this is about being able to continue... Our, our adventure in the world of new media and to go on quests to reach more people and to inspire them and you can be a part of that adventure um, but we can only do that if you help if you join 
um, our fellowship, basically. <laughs> and we have podcasters, but we also have the community that listens and, and makes this possible. So hopefully you will be able to join our fun drive and uh, go to tridio.com for more information. So thanks for listening, and I will see you soon. Take care, and God bless.